The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. The Changed Meaning of Liberty Chalcedon Position Paper, number 53 Words change their meanings, and people who assume that older meanings still prevail invite deception thereby. It is part of current Marxist ideology to give a new content and an alien meaning to such familiar words as peace, freedom, republic, law, and so on. New meanings precede revolutions because the content of human hopes is altered dramatically and the existing order finds that it cannot satisfy the new meanings. Before the French Revolution, the idea of liberty had taken on a new meaning, a very different one than had previously prevailed. As Frank Emanuel in The Prophets of Paris, 1962, pointed out, quote, the very term liberty lost its medieval connotation of a privilege and became the right to bring into being what had not existed before, unquote. page 24. Liberty as a privilege had reference to a religious fact of immunity from civil controls and regulations. Thus, the ancient privilege of the church is its freedom from the state because it is Christ's personal domain and body and hence subject to no controls but those of his law word. Similarly, the privileges of the family exempted it from various controls. Each area of life had its privileges. We still use the word privilege in this older sense when we speak of, quote, privileged communication, unquote. 
a privileged communication, as, for example, between a priest or pastor and a parishioner making a confession or seeking counsel, or between a doctor and a patient, or a lawyer and a client, is free from the controls or knowledge of the state or of other men and agencies. This freedom and immunity is, moreover, a religious fact. Thus, the older definition of liberty as a privilege and as a religious immunity rested firmly and clearly on a Christian culture. As long as the education and culture of the Western world was clearly Christian, liberty or freedom remained a Christian privilege. This older meaning survived in the United States as recently as 1868, when the 14th Amendment to the Constitution declared, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, unquote. Unhappily, the federal government did not bar itself from any such infringement of the people's, quote, privileges or immunities, unquote. The annotated edition of the Constitution published by the federal government says of this, quote, unique among constitutional provisions, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment enjoys the distinction of having been rendered a nullity by a single decision of the Supreme Court issued within five years after its ratification, unquote, in the Slaughterhouse Cases. The court at that time began also to redefine the term, quote, privileges and immunities, unquote, by declaring them to be not religiously grounded, but owing their existence to the grace of the federal government. The state had begun to usurp the place of God. It was the Enlightenment thinkers and the French, quote, philosophies, unquote, who began the redefinition of liberty and its separation from the religious foundation which liberty as privilege had enjoyed. The French Revolution greatly advanced the new meaning. Its slogan was, quote, liberty, fraternity, and equality, unquote. And it soon became apparent that all three had new, ugly, and murderous meaning. Not without reason, as Madame Roland in 1793 went to the guillotine, the new symbol of freedom, she cried out, quote, O liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name? Unquote. All French landlords had to paint on their walls, quote, Unite, indivisibilité, de la republica, liberté, égalité, fraternité, oui la mort, unquote. Death came quickly for many and for lesser reasons than failing to paint this slogan. The Declaration of Rights of the French Revolution set forth the new meaning of freedom. Quote, liberty consists in being allowed to do whatever does not injure other people. Unquote. If this definition sounds familiar, it is because it has been the premise behind the sexual revolution, homosexual arguments, abortion, and a variety of so-called, quote, victimless, unquote, crimes. Liberty has come far from its earlier meaning of a religious privilege or immunity. The meaning of liberty has changed because the culture has changed, so that it is a part of a vast panorama of new meanings. Liberty, as someone told me last year with all the solemnity of a prophet revealing new truth, means that I can do as I please as long as I do not hurt 
another person. It was soon obvious that we had differing definitions also of the meaning of, quote, hurt, unquote. We also differed on what constitutes a, quote, person, unquote. For him, it did include a Soviet KJB officer, as it must for me, since he is, like myself, a creature made in God's image, but not a Nazi, perhaps not a South African white, not a white racist or anti-Semite, not an unborn child, and possibly not some terminally ill elderly people. Because he was a humanist and I am a Christian, our meanings differed at every point. Each of us had a different principle of definition because we had different religions. Karl Marx, in 1848, in the Communist Manifesto, gave a differing humanistic interpretation of liberty. For him, economic equality was the prior goal and virtue. His doctrine of, quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, unquote, called for the satisfaction of all the economic needs before the hunger for liberty is satisfied. However, his plan meant also that a dictatorship defined every man's needs as well as the abilities and the productive responsibility of each man. In such a system, the needed food for a man as well as his needed freedom became a status decision by elite planners. When freedom lost its Christian definition, man became the new definer. Previously, God's law and sovereignty set boundaries on man's power. Man was not free from flagrant sins and breaches of liberty prior to the Enlightenment, but he knew that in all these things he was a sinner. Now, with humanism, he was a new God finding and expressing himself in his autonomous powers. The modern state, as the collective expression of these powers, was, quote, liberated, unquote, to be humanity's new God walking on earth. Artists began to give expression to this new world and life view. In France, Julami Apollinaire, 1880-1918, an influential writer of the avant-garde, worked for total liberation from Christianity. Like the decadents and André Guidi, he sought it in the gratuitous act, Eacte Gratuit, as the example of consistent human freedom. Since the free act, liberty, meant liberation from Christianity, only an inversion of morality could make men free. This meant the evil act, unmotivated evil, evil for its own sake. It meant, quote, the liberating power of wickedness, unquote. Roger Shaddock, The Banquet Years, page 304, 1955. The purity of the acts of liberation rested in the gratuitousness of their evil. Within a generation or so after Apollinaire, Lindner, an American, wrote on Rebels Without a Cause, a study of juvenile criminals and their purposeless crimes. The assault, murder, and mutilation of innocent persons totally unacquainted with the criminal became increasingly commonplace after 1960. The new doctrine of liberty was being enacted on the streets. The French Revolution had declared any act legitimate if it did not hurt or injure another person. The French revolutionary leaders quickly saw their enemies as non-persons and proceeded to kill them. Where God's definition of man is despised, 
Soon man himself is despised and readily killed or victimized. Apollinaire, in a novel, had put a prophecy into the mouth of one man. Quote, on my arrival on earth, I found humanity on its last legs, devoted to fetishes, bigoted, barely capable of distinguishing good from evil, and I shall leave it intelligent, enlightened, regenerated, knowing there is neither good nor evil, nor God, nor devil, nor spirit, nor matter in distinct separateness, unquote. Shattuck, page 253. When all values are denied except man, every man is free to define his own values and to act accordingly. The state, having greater power, has greater freedom to enforce its own values, and, as a result, the new freedom of humanism ends up in history's most malevolent tyranny and slavery. The new liberty is the old slavery writ large. The modern world is far removed from the older world of liberty as a religious privilege which required responsibility and accountability to God. Sinning now passes as the new freedom, and the more perverted the sin, the higher ostensibly the manifestation of liberty. The saddest aspect of all this is the failure of so many churchmen and conservatives to see that. When politicians make promises using the old language of privilege and immunity, they have in mind the newer and revolutionary meanings. William Blake, himself a revolutionary, called attention to the fact that he and his opponents, reading the same thing, read differently. One read black where the other read white. Their presuppositions differed, and hence their reading. The presupposition of the humanistic doctrine of liberty are anti-God and anti-man. For humanism, the great evil is deprivation. Man is seen as entitled to the fullest liberty to express himself, to gratify himself, and to reach true personhood in self-expression. An old hymn, once popular, celebrates Christ as king of all creation and of all things therein. The last two verses read, quote, The government of earth and seas upon his shoulders shall be laid. His wide dominion shall increase and honors to his name be paid. Jesus, the holy child, shall sit high on his father David's throne, shall crush his foes beneath his feet, and reign to ages yet unknown. Unquote. When Christians ceased to work in terms of this assured victory, the humanists began to do so. In terms of their plan, it is Christ and his people who are to be crushed beneath the feet of history and humanistic man. Their current power witnesses to the church's default. Wars are not won when men refuse to fight nor can armies move against an enemy they refuse to recognize exist. Now that the long sleep of the church is ending, the battle begins. The decline of true Christian liberty began when the Enlightenment ideas of natural religion infiltrated the church and replaced the biblical doctrine with the new ideas of, quote, natural liberty, unquote. Previously, theology had, like Thomas Boston in his study of man's fourfold state, distinguished between man's moral abilities in the state of innocence, the state of depravity, the state of grace, and the eternal state. 
Our Lord in John 8, 33-36 makes clear that true freedom comes from Him alone. It is an act of sovereign, saving grace. It gives us powers and immunities and it restores us to our calling to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. Matthew 28, 18-20 Our freedom is a privilege and an immunity. God's act of creation and His providential government establish Him as sovereign or Lord. His law sets boundaries on man's will and thus gives us privileges and immunities which men and civil governments are forbidden to violate. At one time, men spoke of their freedom as, quote, ancient privileges and immunities, unquote. What was urgently needed was the development of this premise. The concept of sphere laws was early set forth in the church's struggle for freedom from the state. The Puritans, with their affirmation of covenanted spheres of life, advanced this doctrine. Abraham Kuyper, who admired the Puritans, formulated this concept philosophically and theologically. On this foundation, the Christian community must revive the doctrine of liberty as a religious privilege and immunity. The claims of the state to be the source of freedom are false and evil. The American patriotic song is clearer on the issue when it hymns God as the, quote, author of liberty, unquote. Those words are no longer sung in most public schools. Both God and liberty are now denied by the humanist. For this bit of honesty, we can thank them as we work to undo their legacy of slavery. August 1984 Donatism Chalcedon Position Paper, number 54 Some heresies begin with very noble motives, but end in evil. This was certainly true of Donatism. Church historians usually classify Donatism as a schismatic movement rather than a heresy. But there are weighty reasons for seeing it as a heresy despite an outward orthodoxy. During the times of persecution, especially that of Diocletian, 245 to 313 AD, there were varying responses from the church. Some men virtually welcomed martyrdom. Others accepted it as a necessary consequence of the battle between Christ and Caesar. Still others took prudent or temporizing steps and others compromised or abjured the faith. When the persecutions ended, there were bitter feelings between those survivors who had not compromised and had endured persecution and those who had compromised. The Donatists, named after their leader called Donatus the Great, wanted no part of the compromisers. They demanded a pure church. They appealed to Constantine, who ruled against them, and they subsequently became bitter enemies of the state. Constantine insisted on liberty of faith and worship, and the Donatists were not touched by him. In a church council of 330 A.D., the Donatists had 270 bishops present. In 411 A.D., at another council, the Donatist bishops present numbered 279. The Catholic bishops... 286. Donatism was no small movement. The Donatists were separatists who demanded a pure church. The church had to be the community of regenerate saints. In the process of seeking this holy church, the Donatists forgot what the Catholic party knew, that saints can sin 
and sinners can repent. Time proved that there was no lack of sin among the Donatists, but there was less ability to face it and cope with it. The issue was at root the doctrine of the church. Was it a school for holiness or the congregation of the holy? The Donatists were often stern in church action against sinners, less effective as a missionary church. More important, Donatism strongly opposed the restoration of pastors who had proven to be cowardly under persecution, who had either surrendered church records or, worse, denied the faith. Such unholy priests were held to be incapable of restoration, and their actions as pastors and the sacraments administered invalid. The Donatists held that holiness cannot be communicated by the unholy, nor faith received from a faithless man. Such a pastor gave guilt, not faith. As a result, the Donatists held Catholic baptism to be invalid. The results of this position were deadly. If a pastor's acts are only valid if he is personally holy, then no man can be sure if his baptism and communion are valid until the priest dies without falling out of the true faith. This raised other questions also. If a pastor strayed from the faith and the baptisms he performed were invalid, were the marriages invalid also? The whole Christian life was plunged into uncertainty, and assurance was denied. The Donatist Patelian said, quote, He who receives the faith from a faithless priest receives not faith but guilt. St. Augustine, the great adversary of the Donatist, said, quote, But Christ is not unfaithful from whom I receive faith, not guilt. My origin is Christ, my root is Christ, my head is Christ. The seed of which I was born is the word of God, which I must obey even though the preacher himself practices not what he preaches. I believe not in the minister by whom I am baptized, but in Christ, who alone justifies the sinner and can forgive guilt. Unquote. With respect to baptism, Augustine said also, quote, To my mind it is abundantly clear that in the matter of baptism we have to consider not who he is that gives it, but what it is that he gives, not who it is that receives, but what it is that receives. Unquote. The Donatist and their zeal for purity had come to give too great a role to the pastor and the church. The validity of the faith was made to depend on the validity of the church. Paul in Romans ten seventeen says quote, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Unquote. The issue was sovereign grace. It is not the church nor the pastor that saves us, but the Lord. In their zeal and passion for the purity of the church, the Donatists had exalted the church to a position far in excess of its appointed place. Salvation was in effect made to depend upon the holiness of men rather than the holiness of God. We are not saved because our pastor is holy and gracious, but because God is. It is not surprising that ever since then, separatist churches, often rebelling against very great evils and unfaithfulness in their mother church, readily fall into Phariseeism. They stress the rightness of their church rather than the grace and mercy of God. It is because of this overemphasis on the holiness of the church that they fall into heresy and slight the sovereign grace of God. 
Only the church which stresses sovereign grace can avoid this peril. It is easy to understand the Donatist hostility to church members and leaders who had proved weak under persecution. It is understandable that questions were raised about their restoration to membership or office. Such questions had to be raised. However, it was no solution to bar them permanently from their place in the church. This step placed the validity of church ordinances and of the church itself upon men rather than in Christ. It is not surprising that in time, Donatism was under suspicion of Pelagianism. Its doctrines placed an undue reliance on man rather than the Lord. After some generations, Donatism disappeared as an organized movement and church, but as a faith, temper, and disposition, it lingered, and it had been a problem for all segments of the church. It has been most a problem where men become most zealous for the purity of the church. The path of Donatism leads from a passion for the faith to an undue trust in men and in institutions. In its results, it becomes a form of humanism. Donatism as a temper in history has been applied far beyond the boundaries of the church. I am regularly asked by modern Donatists who have never heard of Donatism if they are not freed from any duty to obey the state since the state allows abortion, homosexuality, and more. Their zeal for reform in these areas is wonderful. Such people are often the activists whose work is of central importance to more than a few causes. Some, however, react by a pharisaic separation from all reform action. Many medieval scholars held that a state could be placed outside the pale and its ruler a legitimate target for, quote, execution, unquote. They failed to see that murder cannot restore a civil government to a godly function. Much more is needed. Indeed, we must say that the revolutions of our era are a product of a modern version of Donatism. A great deal of current historiography is modern Donatism. It seeks to justify the destruction of one order after another on the grounds that only a strict and destructive separatism can unleash justice. The church Donatist held that separation would ensure grace. The political Donatist hold that it will ensure justice. The word revolution gained its modern meaning from Copernicus and his work on De Revolutionibus Orbium Colestium. Just as Copernicus radically altered man's view of the universe, political revolutionists believe that justice requires the destruction of old orders in favor of their idea of justice. The ruling class must be overthrown and replaced. Existing social institutions must be scrapped and only approved ones allowed to exist. The goal is to create, quote, a truly human order, unquote in which man remakes man in terms of a revolutionary goal. Otto J. Scott, in The Secret Six, as well as in Robespierre, The Voice of Virtue, gives us accounts of the destructive nature of revolutionary men, men who were by nature Donatists. Job answered Zophar at one point with bitter irony, saying, quote, No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Unquote. Job 12, 2. 
This is a telling summation of a temperament common to many people, and certainly to the Donatist. They believe that wisdom was born with them and will die with them. Rather than manifesting grace, they manifest judgment. As St. Augustine pointed out in On Baptism Against the Donatist, C. 400 A.D., the Donatists began to separate from one another and to quarrel in their own ranks. Men whose forte is condemnation cannot be the blessed peacemakers, Augustine said. Quote, we exhort them to come to the soundness of peace and Christian charity. Unquote. Here was a critical weakness of Donatism, the lack of charity. What began as an honest zeal for purity became before long a censorious and uncharitable spirit. Purity is indeed a legitimate goal of the Christian church. Holiness, too, is basic to God's nature and to the image of God in man. Ephesians 4.24 Priority, however, belongs to grace, to sovereign grace. Every reform movement which does not give priority to grace fails to gain either purity or holiness. The Donatist held to a theory of purism and in the name of purity fought with the Catholics and then with one another. Had they begun with grace, they would have made a great and lasting contribution to the church. In the name of purity, they became persecutors. In the process, Augustine charged they distorted scripture, the word of grace, to become a Donatist word. They had charged Augustine become not only schismatics, but heretics. This was not all. Because the Donatists stressed purity and holiness more than grace and forgiveness, they were ready to believe in compulsion. Our political Donatists who want the perfect society now seek by revolution and then by means of revolutionary regimes to compel men to believe, to be, quote, good, unquote, and to be loyal. By their demand for what Augustine felt was an absolute purity of all priests, the Donatists guaranteed two things. First, Phariseeism, and second, censoriousness. We have today many Donatist movements in the church and in politics. That reform is commonly necessary in both realms goes without saying. We must rejoice that many are dedicated to reform if their dedication is marked by grace, charity, and patience. If these are lacking, such people are a major hindrance to their own cause. Because of this warped emphasis, the Donatist temper believes with Job's sorry friends that wisdom was born with them and will die with them. The Donatist is harsh, arrogant, censorious, and impatient. He rejoices in the sins and shortcomings of his opponents and responds to them with condemnation, not with grace. The key issue is grace, sovereign grace. Apart from that, nothing can change. The kingdom of God comes not by our nagging condemnation nor efforts, but by the sovereign grace of God. That grace God communicates to us through his word, not ours. Romans 10:17 Isaiah 52:7 tells us, quote, "How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, 
that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Unquote. If our God reigns, we are not sour Donatists. We are sovereign grace men bringing good tidings of peace and grace, of salvation and victory through our Lord and Savior, Christ the King. September 1984 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had by his pain, the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Oh,